Today's program is brought to you by the Academy Opus Cassius, the cheese industry's unique center for professional development. For more information and to apply for courses, visit our website at www.academymons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E hyphen M-O-N-S dot com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. The cheese business is full of people who accidentally ended up in cheese, and businesses that began a certain way ended up adding so much value to the cheese industry at large. One such business is Micro Dairy Designs, a company whose tagline is, Committed to Small Dairies with Big Dreams. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Greg Blaze, and today we're happy to have Frank Kipe of Micro Dairy Designs in Smithburg, Maryland, on the line. How are you today, Frank? Hi, Greg. I'm excellent as always. Thank you very much, and yeah. thanks for having me. You bet, man. So, Frank, I'd love for you to start by telling us a little bit about how you started Micro Dairy Designs. It seems you started the company almost by accident. It's, it was a complete accident. Uh, my original dream was to milk two Jersey cows and make the world's most expensive ice cream and market it as the world's most expensive ice cream. And I thought I had everything I needed. We have a little 10-acre farmette and, uh, you know, an old bank barn, and we thought we were pretty, uh, pretty well set to go until I called the milk inspector and asked him to come out and bless my project. And instead of blessing it, they um, uh, handed me, the, at that time it was 380 pages of the Federal Pasteurized Milk Ordinance and said, this is what you're going to need if you want to do what you're planning to do. And uh, they said, you should plan on expendi- spending at least... Uh, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. And I'm sure everybody and, uh, has that lying around, you know. You could just <laughs> and at that time, I didn't have the quarter million dollars, and so I got mad, and I just said, well, I'll just build it myself then. And so um, we, uh, you know, went after it. The first thing we built was actually a trailer. It was a 12-foot by 50-foot trailer yeah. with a two-stall cow milking parlor and a milk house and a bathroom with a shower, an office with a lab, and an equipment room, a storage room, a processing room, and a retail sales area. Yeah. And um, then we got to work on the pasteurizer itself, which was kind of the, the critical piece, it seemed, or the hardest, the hardest part to do. And uh, my milk inspector was great. I mean, I would send him CAD drawings of what I wanted to build, and he would say, no, you idiot, you can't do that, but here's how they do it on the real dairies. And we went back and forth for oh, probably the better part of a year or so, and uh, finally got this uh, little pasteurizer built, and he contacted me and said one of his clients, a little goat dairy in Pennsylvania, wanted to look at what we built. And uh, so they came down to take a look at it, and they really liked it and wanted to know if they could buy it. And since I had some ideas to make the next one better, I went ahead and sold that to them and uh, built myself another one. And another of his clients bought that one, and one thing led to another. And uh, 
I think now we have about 450 systems installed in 42 states and 13 countries outside the U.S. So you are correct. It's an accidental business, but we are having a lot of fun. That's pretty awesome, man. I think that's really, really cool. And to my producer, Emily Acosta, uh, she found your company while she was reading about the Abbey of Regina Laudis, which uh, folks might know because of uh, <laughs> Sister Noella, the cheese nun. Uh, they named their pasteurizer Francis after you, uh, which I think is very cool. Um, who are who are well, your was, other customers? That was a great honor, but, yeah. but the, the creativity lies all with that group there. And we find this all the time. We have the greatest customers in the world yeah. because they have, uh, you know, so many great ideas. And if we have a knack for anything, it's kind of trying to find an affordable way uh, to build what our customers want to, to meet their business needs. So It's pretty awesome. Who are your other customers besides them? Or that we would I beg know. your pardon? Who are your other customers besides those guys that we would know? Uh, well, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, most of our customers are very small. Um, uh, you know, New York City, uh, Ample Hills Creameries, kind of a well-known place. Yeah. Um, and um, like I said, we've got about 400 and 450 customers scattered pretty well all over the country and the world. So, so how did you market yourself? Did you, or did everybody just sort of um, come to you? It's 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 pretty much just the website. When we first got started, we were invited to speak at a, a couple conferences, the Pennsylvania yeah. Association for Sustainable Agriculture, and we got uh, you know went up there, and, and a number of people found us. But from there, the only other advertising we've ever done was uh, built a little website. So. So it's sustainable. And it is far from sophisticated, <laughs> yeah, but, but I think it was just the point that we were filling a need, and uh, you know, through the the blessings of internet search, uh, people can find you from all over, everywhere. Completely. Um, what was the biggest challenge to get your company off the ground? Uh, certainly, you know, regulatory compliance is the biggest right. challenge in the dairy processing industry. I mean, like I mentioned, the PMO, the Pasteurized Milk Ordinance, which is the federal guidelines, and then each state has their basically accepts that and then adds their own little uh, nuances and interpretations to it. Um, I think the PMO has now grown to be about 420 pages or so. Uh, but just just learning a whole new language. In other words, this was all stuff that was new to me, and the you know regulatory folks have their own unique language that they use, and so uh, you know learning learning the language was uh, you know was, was probably the, the the biggest part of it, and then uh, you know we we always try and steal ideas from other industries where they make thing by the make things by the tens of thousands sure. and try and apply them to our to our process too. So, but uh, I, I would have to say, I mean, you know, it's you know going through all the regulations is sometimes very frustrating and it, it makes it very difficult to get started. But kind of the whole purpose of our business was to try and put together the roadmap of that, if you will, to make it easy for people to navigate it. And uh, we've, you know, they told me I needed a quarter of a million and we have a little pasteurizer that a lot of small ice cream shops are using now that, you know, is uh, $4,900. So we think we've made some progress at it. That's pretty awesome. I, I love the scalability of, uh, of what 
you know, it starts out as, as a large machinery. The the place that, that I work in, Italy, um, we have a, a like a modified atmosphere uh, packaging program that we do, you know, okay. and, uh, and uh, these machines are, you know, when you buy, when you take a look at them, like in an industrial level, they're massive, you know what I mean? And, um, yep. and so we, we found these, um, you know, these guys, they, they built a tiny little machine, you know, um, where the, all, uh-huh. the, all of those working parts that you can fit, because nobody has any space, you know what I mean? Like people don't yep. have, they don't have space and they don't have, they don't have the capital. So it's like, you know, there's like, a, it's like the model airplane approach, you know, or like a building, like a ship in a bottle is like how, I, you know, that's yep. how, I, how, how I would look at it. Right. Something like that. Although I'll prob- although a lot more complicated, you know, is the the regulations and I'm, I'm sure are just a, a total bitch to get around, you know. Yeah, well, it it, it is a challenge. Uh, I you know, in my instance, I was very fortunate to have a milk inspector that was uh, you know willing to take the time right. to a complete idiot, you know, to say no, you can't do that, or yes, you can do that, and and uh, you know, kind of interpret the regulations for us to you know to actually what it meant. So we were very fortunate in that regard. Um, not everyone is, uh, you know, has has that opportunity. Um, but I think what we've seen is, and I've, I've kind of, you know, I've been invited to speak to, you know, a lot of, you know, regulate regulatory uh, meetings and things like that because our pasteurizer, you know, our system was so small and so different than what most inspectors, milk inspectors, were used to seeing. Right. And uh, we've had the chance to preach to them that our businesses, the um, uh, the Permanent Employment Act for milk inspectors, because they have to come and inspect every little dairy, just like they would do, you know, the largest milk plant that you could find. And so, if they wanted to have job security, the best thing would be to have about a thousand small dairies around, and that would uh, give Absolutely. them job security. And as a result, I think people have realized that in an awful lot of places, small-scale dairying is definitely, um, you know. Uh, kind of where the future of a lot of this uh, creativity is going to come from. Why do you think so? Well, um, it, there, there's nothing quite like the passion of someone who is uh, wants to develop their own product right. and who is willing to take the risks associated with doing it. And there's a confluence of two things that we see. One is there's a lot of artisanal, you know, people want to build something. They want to make something of their own. And on the other hand, we've got people that are looking for what I call food with a story. In other words, something that is a little bit unique, uh, who are looking for a special experience as opposed, you know, after after your fifth four-wheeler, four-wheelers don't, aren't, aren't quite as much fun. People <laughs> yeah, are looking totally. for, you know, for a unique experience. Yeah. And great, great food, innovative products made by creative people is the best way to get there. It's pretty cool. I mean, what, just, just to, to, not to harp on it, but what, so what, it, when, when you talk about, these guys would come, the, you know, the, the inspectors would come back and be like, no, you idiot. And I'm sure they didn't say that, but they'd be like, no, this is, this is, this isn't, this isn't, this won't do, or this doesn't, this doesn't comply. Like what specifically were they referring to in like that, that, that you, in your design that wasn't working for them? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, just, just for example, in scaling it down to yeah. a smaller scale system, you know, in the olden days, a typical vat pasteurizer was like 500 gallons, uh-huh. and you, need to have, you needed to have 250 gallons in to be able to have a, enough milk just to turn the thing on. Right. And then, of course, they had to have special valves and so on. I mean, one of the big things is in, in pasteurizers, for those people that know the pasteurizer business, yeah. the thing, you know, the milk inspectors were always told that what you had to have was a close coupled leak detect valve, which is a very unique kind of valve right. that makes the, that keeps the milk sanitary. On the other hand, an awful lot of the, the, the federal pasteurized milk ordinance says if you had a valve, it has to be this kind of valve. Actually, there was a, uh, and then there's another organization called 3A. Uh, Sorry to get crazy on no, you. No, don't but be crazy. There's another organization, 3A, <laughs> be crazy, basically I tries mean. to interpret yeah. the pasteurized milk ordinance guidelines into how to build equipment. And they actually had misinterpreted the regulations, and that pasteurizers were not things that were used very much. I mean, all the big processing plants use high-temperature, short-time right. pasteurization. Flash pasteurization, so the, yeah. the, Actually, the VAT pasteurizer regulations had not been updated for 20 years, and uh, they wanted to do an update of the regulations, and uh, I got myself on the committee that was rewriting the regulations and you know, got to make a lot of contacts uh, through that, but also got, to, uh, got people to agree that there are some things that make a lot of sense when you're doing, uh, you know, a thousand gallons of milk that don't make any sense when you're doing five gallons of milk, um, but it's but it's still just as sanitary. But we wanted to, you know, to to walk through that, and, and in general, people are receptive to that. But it you have to convince an awful lot of people because all of these committees work by consensus. So everybody has to be committed before you can go forward. So. Yeah, hundred percent. And then I think a lot of a lot of those like things like you know the the information is outdated, and uh, and the people are only based on the information. The people are making their decisions based on the information at hand, and um, and so you know you get people who don't necessarily know the industry that are on those boards. I yeah. would imagine you know so they don't they don't know the ins and outs and the everyday needs of the dairy man or dairy gal, I would imagine. Well, uh, it, um, th- there are some that are brilliant and understand the chemistry and understand the biology and everything like that, yeah. and then there's some that, uh, that, that don't. So <laughs> it's, it's like in, in every field there's uh, um, uh, you know people that are easier to work with and, and, uh, and less so. Right. But one, one of the other things, you know, as you talk about going through, we we had set up very early on in the process three criteria for everything that we were going to build. I mean, we're a very small company. Uh-huh. It's just me and my wife and my son-in-law. So Fantastic. Typically, he builds the equipment. We put it on our truck, and my wife and I deliver it and set it up on the farms and, and then move on from there. But um, we the, the three criteria that we set up originally really have stood us in good stead as we navigated through some of those challenges. And the first thing is 100% regulatory compliance. Yeah. You know, we design our equipment to meet all the regulations. We're going to try and find the most innovative, creative, and cost-effective way to meet the regulations, but we will meet the regulations. Right. The second is what we call economic sustainability. Everyone wants to be environmentally sustainable, but if you're not economically sustainable, you won't be in business long enough to make a difference. Hell no. (laughs) So we didn't build a lot of exotic equipment. We tried to find simple things that met the requirements to keep, you know, to keep the milk sanitary, but at the same time, you know, didn't 
cause you to mortgage, you know, the next 20 years of your earnings to pay for. Right. And then the third thing, you know, was flexibility. Because in small dairies, uh, you know, one of my critiques of the American dairy industry is, you know, we had about three kinds of products. You know, historically, you know, you could have whole milk and you could have chocolate milk and you could have, you know, 2% and, and uh, you know, two kinds of cheese. You could have white colored cheese and blue and yellow colored cheese <laughs> sure. and that was about it. Yep. And what this has enabled people to do is to do a you know much larger variety. So for example, we designed our VAT pasteurizer so that it would work as a legal pasteurizer, but it'll also work it's insulated, so it'll also work as a yogurt or kefir incubation vat. Yeah. It'll work as a cheese vat cheese vat because we can lift the lid up and work with the cheeses. And so it can do a lot of those different things. It can even work Work as a small bulk tank connected up with one of our chillers to store the milk until until you're ready to process. Yeah, and the small the small yeah. business owner, the small farmer, everybody needs things that can become other things. Flexibility and uh, transformation are are super key. That sounds like some some serious yeah. challenges. But um, what I had mentioned to you, what I or started to mention to you before, um, we get a lot of uh, of industry folks and a lot of cheesemakers and dairy people that listen to our show. So you can go as far out there as you like. Do you know what I mean? You can use you can use the languages that 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 you make up, and we'll absorb them into our uh, into our language. You know what I mean? Anything you want to say about dairying and your equipment is. Um, is super valuable to us, and we're really happy to talk to you yeah. about them. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, I want okay. to talk to you about your mission statement. Uh, hang on oh, okay. with us for a moment. Sure. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Rectech. And this track is called Dues Paid. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. The Academy is the only professional cheese school integrating hands-on practice, formal instruction, and curriculum-related visits in every course and attracts students from such diverse countries as Australia, Venezuela, Ukraine, Canada, Sweden, Kenya, and India. Cheesemongering, cheesemaking, and affinage courses form the core curriculum. Sensory analysis training is practiced daily in every program. The Academy also offers insiders tours in New York, London, and Paris, where cheesemongers can meet their international peers and be inspired by different approaches to cheese making and retailing. In the United States, the Academy offers programs in California and Vermont. Our five-day program, Cheese from Pasture to Plate, will run in March 2017 in partnership with Point Reyes Farmstead Cheese and Cowgirl Creamery. The Life of Cheese in Four Days in June 2017 is our ongoing partnership with Jasper Hill Farm. Both of these hands-on courses are perfect for students preparing for the ACS Certified Cheese Professional Exam. Enrollment is open now and space is limited to 10. For more information and to apply for this and other courses, visit our website at academymons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E hyphen M-O-N-S dot com. 
Welcome back to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Greg Blaze, and on the line we've been chatting with Frank Kipe of Micro Dairy Designs in Smithburg, Maryland, though he sells and installs his products to customers around the country. For the next part of our episode, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about your mission, specifically your thoughts on uh, small dairying as an economically sustainable endeavor, both here and in developing countries. You said that you, de- you design your equipment to be economically sustainable, sustainable and sustainable. Sustainability are tricky words. So has environmental sustainability played a big part in your design, in the design of your uh, of your products? Absolutely. But the biggest hurdle that people have to get through is the economics. In other words, can you make a living at right. it? Because then you're committed to doing it. So yeah. uh, economic sustainability is my priority over environmental sustainability, but both are important. So I'm not right. minimizing one or the other, but economic sustainability, you know, comes first. And so that's why, you know, for example, we, what that means is it's got to be affordable to get started. In other words, if you're yeah. starting a small creamery, I mean, our typical customer is milking five cows, 10 goats, or 20 sheep, or half a dozen water buffalo or camels. Right. Okay. Camels. So it's not like they're going to have, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get started. We've right. got to make it economically sustainable from an upfront capital uh, startup uh, uh, situation as well as ongoing. So, for example, our, our service policy is built around UPS. We knew that, that since there was only three of us, it's not like we were going to be able to go out, uh, you know, and provide on-site service for our equipment. So we designed our, our equipment so that the mechanical components can all be repaired by a wrench or repaired with a wrench or a screwdriver. That's great. So we built our service model around UPS. So basically, we ship you the part, you use your wrench and your screwdriver to put the part in. Uh, you know, we could help you with, you know, videos or things like that if you need them, but you put those on and you save the $100 an hour service call that a typical dairy equipment company would charge you for it. So Completely. Um, so that's great. I mean, so you have people, they have a small amount of animals and, you know, they need a small thing to do their to do their thing with. And I, and I understand, like, these, these you know, the, the equipment is typically quite large and quite expensive, and you, uh, and you scale it down. Yep. Um, so you said um, camels, which I find interesting um, that's a, I wanted to, you to tell me more about your thoughts on sustainability economically for creameries in like in developing countries different at okay. the, uh, the biggest challenge in in most developing countries is energy and so we're working on some things with heat exchange systems to to make that a key component uh, you know if you if you know, in in the United States, it's nice because you know we can plug an electric uh, sure. cord into a wall, Bingo, and there you we go. have all the energy we need right. to heat the vat up. Now you would still want to be efficient, but at the same time, the energy is there and readily available. Completely. If you've got to go cut sticks, you know, in the in the woods or in, on the on the savanna, if you got to go cut sticks to build a fire to heat the pasteurizer, that's a, it's another set of challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've done installations where, uh, you know, they they thought they had electricity there and we would install our equipment and they'd have 240 volts and you'd power on, you know, a compressor or something like that and the voltage drops to 70 volts and then, then you've got some interesting challenges. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think the energy uh, and heat transfer issues are, are, the, um, are the biggest challenges, but also many of those places have tremendous opportunities. I mean, you know, we've done a fair amount of stuff in, in in uh, you know Central Africa, yeah. Tell me uh, you about know, that. For example, 
and they've got good sunlight there. So yeah. we're working on things to try and and uh, capture as much of that heat as we can, um, because you know every dairy needs hot water and every dairy needs cold water, yeah, <laughs> or you need heat and heat and cooling capability, and uh, trying to to match that. And there's there's still so much work that needs to be done in that area, and so we basically dedicate a portion of our resources towards uh, you know towards developing those products uh, projects and uh, uh, we've got a number of uh, engineering students from Messiah College in Pennsylvania that have been involved in some of these kinds of activities that are really really smart young people and they just uh, you know keep keep they think far enough outside the box that they get into the box that most of the rest of the world is in. So. Completely. That's that's really cool. I mean, you know, for, for me, as a, I'm, a, I'm a cheesemonger, you know, and, and how I understand cheese and, and the dairying industry is, you know, is, is that making cheese or, or manipulating the milk adds value to the milk, you know what I mean, because it, it, yep. it appreciates in the value. So what's the – when you said you were, you were working in Central, in Central Africa, like what's one, of, uh, what's one of your customers there that you uh, – that you that you've helped to add value to their milk and make them economically sustainable in that in that way. Sure, sure. I mean, one of, another one of the big challenges. I, I was born in Zimbabwe, uh-huh. lived in Zambia and Zimbabwe until I came back to the states to go to college. Yeah, and uh, you know, so we. But, but the biggest challenge in Zimbabwe, for example, is you know because of the economic situation there, mm-hmm. it's it it is very tough for people to have you know to get two meals a day, and the challenge with dairy, of course, is exacerbated because if you don't have good refrigeration, that's a protein source that is very very transient and temporary. Yeah, and so the nice thing about the cheeses are that you can make cheeses and you can have something that's got a much longer life cycle. So now you can make a cheese that has a protein source for for the people that will last an extended period of time and that's really exciting. Yeah, it's super satisfying. I mean, cuz that's what they need. I mean, yeah. here we eat we we eat cheese for a much different reason, you know, but that's the roots of uh, yeah. of why it's uh, why it's so valuable. That's really that's really cool. How about of, for survival, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, that and for me, you know, yeah. it's, it's a I mean, I and I loved I love cheese and all the things that it represents uh, but it's just it's interesting or it must be interesting for you to be able to get down to the roots of that you know from your you wanted those two jersey cows you wanted your nice little nice um you know you wanted to make super expensive tasty ice cream but then you find yourself you know uh, you know installing a pasteurizer somewhere so that people can turn camel milk into a you know into food that they can live off of for a while which is must be a yep. pretty interesting yep. juxtaposition for you um that's an interest. That's really cool. I really, I really like that. That's really great. Um, if okay. folks wanted to learn more about uh, your products and what you do, they got to go to uh, they got to go to your uh, website. Is that is that the best way for them to find it out? That's 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 the best way to find us. Microdairydesigns.com. <laughs> if you want to send a, a, an easier email, is Frank at Kipe. My last name is Kipe, so it's yeah. Frank at Kipe.com. And uh, we'll be happy to send you all of our propaganda and uh, uh, would uh, love to hear 
other folks' ideas and, and ways that we could do everything we do better. My goal in life is to learn at least one new thing every day, and I very seldom fall short of that quota because there's so so much uh, interesting stuff out there that needs to be done. No, there's amazing stuff. So just uh, just because I've got you, what's what's the most? What was the biggest or like what was the hardest job you ever you've ever done through this? What, what was the most challenging? If you can pick uh, one. <laughs> um, I've got you here. You know, yeah, I want I you think, to tell me. <laughs> um, I, th- I, I really think, go back to the first thing that we started on this, yeah. was interpreting the regulatory guidelines and getting them in a way where you can, I mean, there's still no such thing as a cheap pasteurizer, but right. the ability to scale things down and then also to, to change the technology approach to the extent where it doesn't have to cost a quarter of a million dollars to get started. Well, you shrunk, you said the, the cost uh, down to 4900 bucks. That's pretty good. That's like a used car. For, that- <laughs> I, I had one guy from New York called me. Uh, you know, his son had seen me at a, at a conference, uh, and he went back home and showed his dad all the stuff. And his dad says, "Hell, that's cheaper than a pickup truck." That. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Do you uh, do you make any any um, cheese or anything yourself now? Do you do you, do you make your own products? I, I do not. In fact, if, if you Google Earth my property, my trailer that I made, you know, back in the early. 2000s is still sitting in the middle of my field with two cows walking around it, and uh, it, it has not been used yet. So. <laughs> what are the names of your two cows? Rapunzel and Mary Fay. Mary Fay and Rapunzel. Are they happy? Yep. They're, they're, they are happy cows. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, happy cows make good milk. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today, Frank, and uh, I want to thank to everybody for listening. Um, I want you all to tune in next week for more Cutting the Curd. Take care. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.